On today's episode of Design Lab, we are going to talk about designing for behavior change and global health. I am Bong Koo, your host. Thanks for tuning in to our podcast that explores the intersection of design and health. We have two guests today from the design consultancy Common Thread. Shereen Gurkis is a co-founder and lead strategist at Common Thread. She turns data into powerful narrative. She brings over two decades of experience leading large-scale behavior change strategies to tackle public health crises. She's helped rid the world of polio, mitigate COVID-19, end West Africa's Ebola outbreak, and respond to the Indian Ocean tsunami. Shereen has spent 15 years working at senior behavior change positions at UNICEF and is widely published in public health and social behavior change. She holds a master's in public health from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and she also has a master's in international development and economics from Johns Hopkins University. She's a guest lecturer at NYU School of Global Public Health and participates in numerous technical advisory groups, including the Global Polio Eradication Initiative, PATH, and the Task Force for Global Health. She lives in Barbados and loves riding horses, diving, and design in all its forms. Mike Coleman is a co-founder and lead storyteller at Common Thread. He ensures that people weigh in on decisions that impact and depict their lives. Through senior communication posts with UN agencies in Angola, Pakistan, and Vietnam, and experience in social development, documentary production, and international journalism, Mike has gained invaluable experience crafting people-centered narratives. Through his work in polio eradication and responding to violence against health workers in Pakistan, he learned the importance of human-centered design. Mike holds a master's in public communications from Goldsmiths at the University of London. He is part of a USAID and Gates Initiative community of practice called Design for Health. He has lectured at NYU School of Global Public Health and served as a lead trainer for the U.S. Center for Disease Control's Stop Polio program. Mike's based in Ireland, where he spends his days biking, camping, and coaching his girls' soccer team. Visit our website at designlabpod.com. There you can see a transcript from the show, find show notes, learn more about the guests, and get related links like where Mike and Shereen will take you out to eat if you visit them. There you can sign up for our newsletter. Each week, our producer, Rob Puglisi, writes his reflections on the show. You'll get the show notes and link right into your email inbox. You don't have to worry about missing a show. Support us in three ways. Go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, give us five stars, follow us, and leave us a review. I really appreciate everyone who has shared the podcast with their colleagues. I got a nice email from someone living in Ireland who shares the podcast with his team. That is how others find out about the show. That gives us the stoke to keep on producing this every week for you. Now, here's my conversation with Shireen and Mike. Shereen and Mike, welcome to Design Lab. It is an honor to have you all on the show. Really great to be here. Thanks, Bon. An honor to be here. Thank you so much for inviting us. So an old school virus brought you together to start your company, Common Thread. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So Mike and I met about a decade ago, which is really hard to imagine that it's been that long. We met while we were trying to eradicate polio. Before that, I was working on polio eradication in India, and India had just eliminated 
portfolio, I think it was in 2010, and I had moved over into working with UNICEF at a global level. And at that time, Pakistan, Nigeria, and Afghanistan were the last three countries that had not yet eliminated polio. And we were looking for somebody who was ready and willing to take on the task in Pakistan, which was really, really challenging. And Mike fell for it. And that's how we met. (laughs) Yeah. At that time, I wasn't tricked, actually. I was really, really interested in it. I mean, it was this massive global health program, as you know. It's this incredible challenge of reaching literally every child at the doorstep with an oral polio vaccine multiple times. So for like logistically, even it's incredible. And then the complexity, and I was just sort of fascinated by a place like Pakistan, right? Where there's like so many different cultures, so many different languages, religions, geographies. It was just an incredible challenge. Unfortunately, in 2012, the major challenge was also a sort of unprecedented uptick in violence against health workers. So we saw that healthcare workers the first time in a targeted way, to our knowledge anyway, were being killed and we wanted to... Oh, I, rem- I remember that. That was yeah. horrific. That's exactly the word for it. And it was something that was so unprecedented. And I think Shireen and I really bonded on the fact that it felt like we didn't have the answers. You know, like this, this wasn't an answer that sat solely with public health. This was a security issue. This was a social cultural issue. This was a political issue. This was something that really had broad layers of complexity, deep, deep layers of complexity, I should say. And what it boiled down to was really kind of understanding the people that we were trying to get this vaccine to, which on the surface seems quite simple. You know, why wouldn't someone take a free vaccine to help their children, ensure their children wouldn't be paralyzed? So that's kind of how we met. That's the bond where we started really thinking about how can we support programs like these in ways that that recognize that complexity and those those layers. Yeah. A lot of lessons to be learned for our current pandemic. And it's not the this is not the first time that a virus has ravaged the, the planet. And I, I appreciate what you're saying that it's just not an infectious disease public health issue. It it is the most complex issue that really infects all parts of society. And I love the work of common thread. So can you tell us about what is Common Thread? What type of work do you do? Who are your clients? Yeah. So Common Thread is a behavioral design firm for global public health. We work for a lot of international organizations that work on public health. In fact, the leaders of global public health globally. So, you know, we've done work for the Global Vaccine Alliance, Gavi. We work with the World Health Organization. We work with UNICEF, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. We've done work with Save the Children at an NGO level. So we really work with the sort of big players that design policy, design programs, and also fund a lot of ministries of health and government health programs globally. And I I think, you know, one of the things that we always say is that Common Thread was born out of frustration and it was born out of this tension that Mike just described in Pakistan. And so through that experience, we really realized that there was a there was a different way that public health could be done. Mm. And we thought we sort of touched on something when we were working together on polio eradication, and we wanted to take that a little bit further and, and see what we could do. And that's how Common Thread was born. It's a global company, right? You all are all over the planet. Can you tell us what type of person works at Common Thread? Yeah, I can give that a shot. Our team's fantastic. And like any company, really, the people make magic happen. 
the type of person who works at Common Thread is really, I think, very, very driven by wanting to be involved in something that has a positive impact on the world as a start, I think. And then I think they really want to see tangible change, you know, and they're not necessarily content with producing reports. Some of them may have worked for big organizations before, whether they're agencies or international organizations or design firms. So they want to sort of speak to people, listen to people, see how we can work together and promote positive change. The other thing I would say at the core of it is a, a real emphasis on multidisciplinarity, right? On this idea that, again, going back to this idea that not one single discipline is going to solve these really, really sticky issues. Mm. So a lot of the creativity in our firm comes from the discipline sort of, you know, kind of rubbing up against each other, a bit of tension, a bit of that kind of debate and really trying to understand multiple points of view from a disciplinary point of view and building that kind of empathy, which helps us understand the complexity of the people we're trying to serve. So that's yeah. that's definitely a unifying characteristic, I think, is we don't want there to be a single common thread team member from the point of view of their profile, who they are. Yeah. I love that you paired creativity and public health or global public health. That's something that people don't normally associate if you do word association. And I love the case studies that you have on your website for your company. You, ha you describe three flavors of design, experience design, research design, strategy design. Can you pick one of those flavors and tell us how you use it in a project that you've done? Yeah, thanks, Bon. One of the things that we really, really enjoy, and it really cuts across everything that we do is research design. And that's really how we start all of our work, whether it's strategy design or experience design or storytelling. And so we always really try to listen to people first and understand people. That's sort of one of our mottos is we, we empathize, we try to listen, we understand, and then we design. And, you know, we're doing that right now in this really, really fascinating project that we're working on in Poland to understand how Ukrainians fleeing from the Russian war, how they are experiencing services in Poland, how they experience things like sending their children to school or going for a medical appointment or mm -hmm. trying to find a place to live or even the journey of the services that they encounter on the way from Ukraine to Poland or from Ukraine to another area. And so that's a really, really fascinating project, which Mike's been leading and he might want to talk more about that. But we really try to borrow from lots of different methodologies to triangulate different types of data to really understand what people see so what, what do people think is happening at the sort of front stage of things? And then what's going on behind the scenes? And there's so many layers to that behind the scenes research. So there's behind the scenes of what's going on in people's minds and brains and their emotions. And that's really where we bring in behavioral science methods and methodologies to understand what's influencing people's sort of individual behavior. And then we really bring in sort of like design research and service design to understand how services influence people's behavior and how different touch points might influence people making different decisions at mm -hmm. different moments of their journey, depending on how things are designed for them or not. And then really understanding the social context, the you know cultural context. And so we really layer in lots of different methods from different fields to sort of get at a very deep understanding of the person and where that person is in their environment and their context. That's a pretty intense design brief. What 
did your client ask you to do? Like, what was their question? Yeah. So we did a first phase last year, just a couple months after the invasion. And really it was responding to a refugee crisis like any other refugee crisis. You know, let's get this stuff really quickly. Let's get it up. Let's get it going. Let's make sure that basic needs are met. We've got shelter and food and a, a safe place for people to be. And that was really, really important in the sort of acute phase of the, the crisis in Ukraine. As time went on, you saw this sort of interesting, and not even a lot of time, by the time we were there in May, you had Ukrainians, of course, going back and forth, right? They would go be in Poland, and they would mm -hmm. go back and see their relatives. They'd go home for a birthday party. They'd go home to check on their houses. They'd go home to check on their parents, you know? And these were, in a way, the services that were being designed weren't quite as nimble in some ways to respond to those things. So in general, that first brief was, how do Ukrainians perceive the services as they're being provided? And what are recommendations that we can make as we adapt them and introduce new ones? And some of the insights coming out of there were really interesting. There were things like a real tension and discomfort amongst Ukrainians at so much generosity being given at them. This discomfort at not being able to say thank you in a way that, that they felt maintained their dignity. You know, there were things around recognizing that people are really oriented towards home, which is not unusual, but the value placed to Ukrainian education, mm. even Ukrainian vaccine schedules versus Polish vaccine schedules. Mm. These were things that were needing and we were recommending be included in how services were designed, thinking about this, the kind of multitude of journeys. There wasn't a single journey. Mm. People were going from Poland and back and then to another country and a fourth country and then coming back and there was a lot of variety there that was important there. So part of our, our work there was really rapid. It was a 10-day sprint, you know, wow. start to finish kind of design sprint where we ended up with prototypes of intake forms. We had prototypes of the way service centers could be, could be designed in terms of how the services were prioritized mm -hmm. and referrals were given. We had proposed just to test a kind of calendar that would allow people to promote Ukrainian festivals, events, things happening in the communities, but also give them in sort of segments of time that were manageable kind of psychologically for people, three-month increments that would say, this is what's happening now, and this is what's happening now. Because we heard a lot that long-term planning for Ukrainians in Poland was really difficult. It was mm -hmm. difficult to say, what are you doing in 10 months from now? And the answer is almost always, well, hopefully the war is finished and we're home, mm -hmm. back with our family. So that's just to give you a quick snapshot of that. We're working on a second phase now where we're looking at feedback mechanisms, looking at how Ukrainians are able to give feedback, how service providers are able to process and respond to that feedback in ways that make sense. Mm. And there's this really nice confluence of a principle, I think, in humanitarian world, which is accountability to affected populations, right? Mm. So that those are things like communication and transparency and participation in the services that are designed for them, which is also the core of human-centered design and design yeah. research. So it's there's been a really nice sort of comparing notes and finding the best of those worlds as well to, to bring together. How is your method different from maybe other approaches when, you know, this is a crisis situation, they have to rapidly develop and create services. Is this the way that's typically done in global health or is your approach unique? I think it's starting to become more mainstream, which we're really, really excited about. And that was one of the things that we started Common Thread to try to do is try to make 
our approach less unique. We really wanted to promote this as being the norm. And one of the things that we we've seen in the last couple of years, which has been really positive, is that human-centered design and behavioral science thinking is shifting a little bit from an innovation kind of space to a mainstream space. And we're so excited about that. And, you know, more and more organizations are calling us and saying, okay, our leadership has, you know, they've bought, you know, they've drunk the Kool-Aid, they get it. They really want this approach to be mainstreamed in our organization. And so it's becoming more acceptable that this is the gold standard of how you should do the things and not a sort of nice to have if we have additional funds or if there's somebody who's interested in a different way of doing things. I just had, I think there's still a bit of a tension of, you know, getting that comfort. People are quite comfortable with quantitative data, you know, with looking at reams of reams of data and looking at graphs and funding a six month study that may be less relevant six months down the road than it was in an emergency context. So Mm -hmm. I think promoting the depth that this type of rapid research can provide. And that's how we were positioning. Obviously, human-centered design isn't, isn't always rapid. It can yeah. be long-term and provide sort of a kind of longitudinal view. But in this case, we wanted to promote it as a way that was appropriate for a humanitarian response that we can say, we can talk to people in the moment, get feedback on some of your ideas, hear, hear new ones, really expand our thinking on this and get back to people. And I think the other thing that we're insisting on more and more is, that, for example, in this case, we're working alongside a Ukrainian UX firm, because we want to make sure that we have that local knowledge, that local context, that that understanding. Similar to work we've done in Kenya, in Ghana, Pakistan, we, we're insisting on having local partners mm-hmm. for our work and challenging this kind of global north expert who gets helicoptered in to tell someone yeah. else how to do, do things. So we're trying to find the best of both worlds where we can. Yeah. Walk us through how experience design or strategy design look in some of your projects that you've done. One really exciting project that we've been working on over the last year was in Kenya. And it started in the middle of COVID, I said the end of 2021, it's all blur, 2021. (laughs) Vaccines were just starting to flow into global South countries. There was a lot of excitement about getting vaccines distributed more globally. And as, as still often happens in the global health space everywhere is that, you know, there's this emphasis on supply. And so there was, you know, a lot, we all remember the massive interest and intensity of vaccines, you know, appropriately so. And then there's an assumption that people are just, they're going to take it, right? When the vaccine comes, it's, you know, build it and they will come. And of course, COVID was the ultimate global experience that showed us that's not the case. And that's a massive assumption. Of course, we learned that during polio eradication, because that that is the challenge that polio eradication had been grappling with for over a decade and still grapples mm-hmm. with. And then it just, you know, that same problem just monumentally magnified with COVID. And so we were asked to identify how do we help people in specific countries want to take the vaccine? How do we increase demand? Could you give us a strategy? And so we went in with our traditional methods of understanding the context and understanding the health system and understanding the vaccine situation and understanding all of these different elements. And of course, in the background, the COVID pandemic was changing and it was Mm. you know, becoming less severe and different variants were coming out. And the world around this problem was completely and dramatically shifting every single day. And so at the end of this process or in the middle of this process, we basically said, we don't think that a strategy is for COVID vaccination is really going to have the most impact because people 
don't really want it anymore. They don't, it's not their most pressing need. And so that was a really interesting and amazing example of just people's behavior real time feeding into a strategy design. And we were so fortunate to have a client that understood that really, really well and lived mm. to those principles and said, well, let's figure out what people do need in their health system. Let's figure out how to make things relevant for them and what is relevant for them. And so we started to, you know, again, talk to lots of different people. And what we found was that, in fact, people were really, really interested in why the COVID pandemic was such a big deal in Kenya. And it was exacerbated in all of our countries because there were systemic issues with the health system. And so our strategy ended up sort of pivoting from just a COVID vaccination strategy to, you know, let's look at how to prevent this being so traumatizing and so detrimental to people in the future. Let's look at preventing that. And so our strategy is now around these four pillars of how do you help frontline workers, for example, use data every day in their day-to-day lives? How do you make sure that local health systems get the resources that they need when they need it? You know, people, money, partners. How do we make sure that health services are designed with the people that they're meant to serve and not for the people that they're meant to serve? So it just changed the whole trajectory of our strategy, actually. Yeah. And I love how on your website, you have just amazing storytelling around these projects, which is like great visuals. And and we're going to link to that in the show notes as well. And that's something that researchers, public health people, medical practitioners, we don't do a great job at. And I'm curious to know, where does that storytelling aspect come from and why the emphasis on it? Yeah, I think Storytelling has always been central to what we do and why we wanted to set common thread up. I think we have been in the situation of sitting on a big long table and looking at a PowerPoint projector of epidemiological data and then going, okay, well, that's that's interesting. And I have a sense that there's a group in that area and they have these demographic characteristics, but that we were always remembering the mission where we'd meet the woman who told us about their 10 children and how they experienced violence while they were out being a vaccinator or how the healthcare workers, for example, that project that Shireen was mentioning in Kenya, we have this called the call for change. And it's really about bringing this bottom-up innovation from counties. And we brought them together in a workshop just to sort of hear from them. And there became this moment where they started talking about the, the trauma of healthcare workers were experiencing. And this group of healthcare workers were crying in the course of telling the story. Mm. And that, of all things in that workshop, is the thing that's stuck with people really, really strongly. Yeah. It's just human nature. It's just more powerful, isn't it, to sometimes speak to the massive numbers and data and their graphs through single stories, through single communities. You can't capture that in a data set or PowerPoint. No. <laughs> no, we sometimes say we're, we're trying to find the people you're sort of hiding behind the the graph, you know? And then to be honest, there's two ways we do that. One is to really kind of eke out what we just sort of refer to as social data, like even in epidemiological data, what are the sort of personas we can construct out of gender, out of socioeconomic status, out of language, tribe, and what does that tell us? And then even further, that that texture that you get from speaking to people and understanding them and giving them a voice in a way that's not kind of extractive. We're not trying to, you know, kind of get someone's story in order to use it for our own purposes, but rather to express a problem through through a single voice, a single story, 
in order to make a larger point that it's human nature just tends to stick with us more strongly. And sometimes it's the entry point as well for us to get into the more complicated things, but we've always found it to be a a powerful tool. Can you describe what a persona is? Designers use personas a lot, and I see you use it in a lot of your case studies. Yeah. And what, what is a persona in the context of your work for those listening who may not know what that is? For us, we use personas in a number of different ways. They're always research-based. We don't generally use assumption-based personas that are not based on either things we've read or people we've talked to. It's usually a blend of the, the two things we've seen. Personas for us are ways to sort of segment the groups, the people, the, the context in ways that are manageable, that are memorable, and that provide us sometimes with a shorthand to deal with particular specificities of a strategy or an approach. We occasionally, and, and there is debate, I think, probably of the effectiveness of, of personas sometimes, like how heavily they're leaned on versus as a, as a sort of facilitating tool. We use them in the back end sometimes just to help our, our teams to kind of understand ways to collate our research and to bring some of that data together in a way that's, that's more digestible, that becomes a shorthand for a team. In other cases, it's more client-facing. One very practical way we've used it recently is is building out a um, a kind of social behavior change toolkit and and program guidance. And it was in this huge international organization, mm. and just trying to understand who needs to use this thing. Was that the one for UNICEF, or was that different? Yeah, okay. exactly. So UNICEF's going through this this sort of change process where they're really emphasizing a broadening of the social social change and behavior change disciplines and strategies that they're using, which which they've always used, but it's kind of really emphasizing and and raising up some of those emerging areas like behavioral science and human-centered design, but then making it digestible for everyone from someone who might be managing a program at UNICEF to the person who has to implement the program at a sub-national level. Mm. So these were just used to understand, okay, we need to understand a donor, we need to understand someone who runs a program, we need to understand the the practitioner. And so that became a way for us to organize the research. I don't know, Shireen, if you want to add to that. I think what's interesting is what we try to do is sometimes personas are segmented by demographic or by user or by gender. And so you'll often see, well, you know, here's a female persona or here's a consumer persona. And one of the things we really try to do when we blend the behavioral science and human-centered design approaches, for example, our personas might be segmented by behaviors. And so you might see different behavioral personas. And so this is how this persona behaves. These are their interests. And we always try to blend a mix of their behavior with, you know, their context. And so this persona, you know, here's Bond's persona. Here's his journey as a medical practitioner. But hey, he also really loves to surf. Understanding those things about the full person allow us to be creative and find entry points that you wouldn't normally find through traditional data collection methods or just through these quantitative data points that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, I love that. You are self-described as behavioral designers. I'm going to put on my skeptic hat. And if I am a healthcare administrator, a public health researcher, a medical doctor, and I come across you all and I go, why, why the heck do we need behavioral designers? What is freaking behavioral design? I'm the expert here. Why do we need to work with you all? What value add can you give to our project? 
We're very familiar with that skeptical. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, that's a, like right on, right on script. Is a, this is a softball here. Yeah. <laughs> this is our day to day. That's like 8, 8 a.m. <laughs> no, it's a great question. And it's why we were created. I think in large public health programs, that literally was our day to day. You know, there would be 25 epidemiologists in the room or virologists, and then there would be one behavioral scientist around the table who had to carry the entire field, you know, on their shoulders yeah. and convince an entire room why why this field was important. And that's exactly what we're trying to change is we're trying to at least get to a level where there's, you know, 12 and a half behavioral scientists and 12 and a half epidemiologists. And that one, that half person could be possibly one whole person who understands the importance of both. And so I think one of the things that we always find in public health is that these meticulous, researched, evidence-based programs and policies get designed. And it's like, this is what the science says is supposed yeah. to happen. You know, this vaccine is going to save the world, or this is going to eliminate disease and morbidity and mortality and all these amazing things. And then epidemiologists get frustrated because people get in the way. They're like, <laughs> no, people are ruining the best laid plans. This is perfect. And that happens everywhere, right? In every field, public health is, is no different, but public health really has exceptional, you know, epidemiology to me is the most fascinating science because it can be used for so many different things. And it's such a, it's such a powerful science to target, to design, to really be very specific. And it breeds a lot of frustration when people don't do what you expect them to do. And so yeah. our field sort of takes that problem, and I'm doing air quotes, you can't see me, but it takes that problem <laughs> and turns it into an opportunity. And to say, well, you know, people get really frustrated that people aren't behaving in the way that we think they should be. But actually, when you start to understand that, people are actually the solution. And that's the opportunity that's missed yeah. so many times in public health. It kind of reminds me of economics, where these economic theories are based upon an assumption that people behave rationally, but That's exactly. people don't Absolutely. behave ra rationally in these market-driven forces, right? That's why the whole field of behavioral economics, I think, got very popularized. I think it's exactly it. I mean, we, we sometimes say we design for services for how people actually are, not for how we wish they were mm. or want them to be. And I think, you know, you could go on the practical level. If we do this, understand this, this complexity in advance, this will save you time. This will save you money. This will be more efficient and appeal there. I also wonder, and it'd be interesting to get your reflection on this spawn. I mean, I know there's moves to like whole person health, you know, where we look not just at the disease side or at a particular kind of component of health or risk, but behavior, lifestyle, socioeconomic background, even, and trying to understand that. And I feel like this, in a way, is, is aligned with that. It's kind of saying you want to deliver this service in a way that, in some way, if not ignores, maybe minimizes the reality in which we all live and the way we actually yeah. make decisions and the way we yeah. weigh up this versus that, you know, going surfing versus going to the, to the doctor for a checkup. So I don't know. It sort of feels like it's one of these recognitions that we're all coming to that, that it's, it's hard and these sort of discrete siloed approaches are... Yeah. You get us to that, you know, polio is a great example, got us to 90%. Mm -hmm. But that 10% has been really, really hard. Yeah. And that's a human problem. That's not a science problem. Yeah. Health is so hyper-local that what works for the population of Philadelphia, where I practice medicine, is totally different from London right. or in Seoul, South Korea. But even within Philadelphia, what works in 
South Philly may not work in exactly. North Philly and what works for a particular community in North Philly may be different from three blocks where it's a totally different ethnic Absolutely. makeup for that community. Yeah. So it's so, so complex. Oh gosh. I have so many more questions here, but I, I want to <laughs> get to a couple. One personal question for both of you, Shereen and Mike, did you, as a kid, did you grow up thinking I want to be working in behavioral design and work on eradicating diseases like polio? Like what was your personal journey to get into the space? Cause I imagine this did not exist when you were younger and then you are literally creating the space that you work in. Yeah, that's a great question. We have a lot of colleagues on our team that have studied behavioral design and Mike and I are always envious of the programs that they <laughs> that yeah. they get to go to. And I, I always wish I could just rewind 20 years and these academic programs would have existed when I was there. Or maybe I just didn't know about them. But my journey was really haphazard into the space. The only sort of, I guess, clear path was I was a big nerd when I was about 15 or 16, and I was part of the Model UN team at my school. My school had a Model UN team, and I loved it. And it was basically a debate club where you could debate global issues and represent different countries. And I loved it. I thought, this is what I want to do with my life. I had no idea what the UN actually looked like or what it entailed, but I always had this dream of potentially working for the UN. And so I pursued that. And then I started working for the UN and just fell into public health. It's not something that I studied, but I had this amazing mentor when I started working and he was a public health nutritionist. And one of the things that he told me was nutrition is behavior change. Everything about good nutrition is behavior change. And I had never thought about public health that way. And so that was my first exposure into social and behavior change. And each time in my career, I just fell into social and behavior change, which is pretty good indication that... It is literally the core of everything we do in public health because I always thought I was doing something else and then I ended up doing social and behavior change. So after that, I went to work in the Maldives after the Indian Ocean tsunami and started doing data collection and communication and then realized that that was also social and behavior change because we were looking at how to understand people that had just experienced this traumatic event. And then from there, I went into polio eradication and thought I was getting into public health and then found myself at the center of the largest social and behavior change program in the world. So wow. it's always been <laughs> possibly something I've just fallen into. And then I guess at some point I just, you know, I just threw up my hands and accepted that this was going to become the core of my career as opposed to, you know, a tangential part of my career. So here I am. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess for me let, me, let me just start out by making a real I guess, plea for the value of people like I think me, I'll say, I don't want to say Shireen, because she has this great public health background and a lot of experience, but for this kind of passionate, enthusiastic generalist who works with specialists and experts, you know, I think the blend can be really, really powerful of being comfortable to ask stupid questions, again, air quotes that no one can see, being comfortable with drawing from sort of a, a multiplicity of backgrounds and, and interests and, and bringing that to the table along with people who have that specialization, that that to me is, you know, hey, a common thread, something we're always striving for, getting that balance, right, of expertise. People can you know, understand these things backwards and forwards, and those people who are able to infuse those same ideas with new ways of thinking and points of view. So soapbox, stepping off. But beyond that, as a kid, well, what did I want to do? I think I wanted to be an archaeologist, actually, to be an archaeologist Ooh. and then a writer. And I thought, oh, I can't make money as a writer. So I'll study journalism. So I studied journalism and, and worked for a while. And 
as a journalist, including doing some work in and around Canada, where I'm from, but then just thought, okay, I need a break. This was only after two years, so I don't know what I was thinking, but I took a volunteer program in Poland, actually, coincidentally, which at that time hadn't wasn't part of the EU, was still kind of had a bit of a communist hangover. It was around 1998. And I worked for a, a state-run seniors home and home for people with developmental disabilities, just as a volunteer. So it's like totally different, but I just mm. felt the exposure to a different place, a different language, a different culture, and then feeling like I was at least in some way using my limited energies and talents to help other people, that, that just really felt, felt right to me. And then, so I just sort of started pursuing the international space. Worked as a journalist in Honduras for a while, went to Sri Lanka while the civil war was still going on, working for an NGO there, and then tried to go back to Canada and, and get a grown-up job and, and failed in that. So it went back to my first UN job was with the UN in Vietnam. And that would have been my first real exposure to public health, I think, was a bird flu outbreak. Really seeing the limitations of what we were doing, which was being on a kind of an external communication side of the table. On the marketing side, I guess, was, you know, putting messages out, putting information out, and just very clearly seeing the limitations of, of a message where you say, hey, don't touch sick or dead pool tree and just make sure you kill your entire flock to people who had, you know, who had no, no other form of uh, a way to make money and, and didn't really understand the implications of what we're being asked. But it was this very kind of top-down approach to that. So that just seemed interesting to me. And I started studying behavioral science and communications applied in a behavioral sort of way to influence people's work. And then, yeah, just a few other places, Angola for a while, and then Poland. And we, we know the story from there. So just getting, getting into polio eradication and seeing that, that potential it just really felt like an opportunity that there was a gap there that we could try to try in our own small way. Incredibly diverse careers. Mine is so boring. I went to med school residency, work in a hospital. So jealous. Actually. I'm jealous of, of the background that you both have. <laughs> if a listener were to come visit you, Shereen and Mike, where would you take them out to eat? <laughs> That's a great question. Well, I've just recently moved to Barbados just Love three months Barbados. ago. So <laughs> come visit. I've been having a lot of fun exploring lots of different places. So you can ask me this question again in six months, Bond. I might have a different answer for uh -huh. you. So far, so far, there's this incredible restaurant called Local and Company. It's uh, one of the few farm-to-table restaurants in Barbados. And not only is it farm-to-table, but it's farm-to-table just flat in front of the ocean. And it's the most incredible view they change their menu seasonally, and you guys should all come visit me in Barbados, and I'll take you there. That looks incredible. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. I love the food in Barbados. been surfing there a couple of times, and oh, the place looks amazing. What about you, Mike? So boring in comparison. I feel like if anyone comes to Ireland, they want to see a pub. So I think I should take them to a pub. Be called a proper pint of Guinness, <laughs> usually served with a, a pack of... Uh, as they'd say, cheese and onion crisps, you know, like a chip chips. <laughs> so there's a pub in my neighborhood called Birchall's, which is great. Just a nice casual kind of pub with a, with a fireplace and just a real neighborhood place. In terms of maybe a restaurant though, I've been mostly vegetarian for maybe seven or eight years. And there's a place called Glass in Dublin that is G-L-A-S, which is just a really excellent 
vegetarian place, great food, nice atmosphere, and and right in the city center. So that's probably you never took me there, Mike. <laughs> Actually, I took I took Shreen to a place that was a lovely restaurant, and as as I was waiting for like a fight broke out right in front of us, and I thought, oh no, this is the These worst the ever. <laughs> advertisement. I don't get I don't get taken to glass. <laughs> Well, I hope to visit both of you one day and eat at both these amazing places. Thanks for coming on the Design Lab podcast. Thanks for having us, Bob. Great. Yeah, it's been great fun. Thanks a lot. Go to the podcast show notes, learn more about the case studies that Shireen and Mike had mentioned, and follow Common Thread on Twitter and Instagram. Their handle is G-O-C-O-M-M-O-N. T-H-R-E-A-D and reach out to me on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U Design Lab is produced by Rob Pavisi, editing by Fernando K. Rose. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.